Well, hey, everybody, whether you're here in the room or joining us online, it's great to have you along for the ride. Are you enjoying third winter? Anybody with me on this? Yeah, I'm, I opened the door yesterday and I was like, you got to be kidding me. But I think spring, spring will come. Aslan, as they say, is on the move. So uh, we're in the middle of a series that we've called Reinventing Religion that, as I've mentioned, is some of the most important content that I've ever shared with you because it takes us right to the heart, both of what Jesus came to do and who his followers, people like us, are supposed to be in the world today. Okay, so with our time together this morning, we get to explore a scene from the accounts of Jesus' life. It's actually one of my favorites, where he gets angry. And if we're honest, the idea of angry Jesus makes more than a few of us a little bit uncomfortable, right? Especially if you grew up in church like I did, surrounded by pictures of Jesus that looked like this. Are you with me? I mean, let's be honest, this guy doesn't get angry, right? He's like a Zen master Jedi or something, yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm particularly fond of, of this photo. This is actually from my camera reel on my phone uh, because, well, for many reasons, including where I first saw it. Uh, and you can't make this up. This picture hangs in the airlock of a church located on the shores of the Sea of Galilee in Israel. Like, like, honestly, when I first saw it, I found myself thinking, dude, if anyone should have a proper picture of what Jesus looked like, <laughs> I digress, yeah. Um, so back to the picture. Just let it sink in, let it wash over you. Uh, I mean, Jesus, if we're honest, looks a little bit like he's been frequenting one of those highly branded new stores that have opened in Lowell. Are you with me, Lowell people? <laughs> oh, yeah, I was, yeah, we picked on Holland last week. I'm just spreading the love. Anyway, now, then, there's, then there's the fact that he is dressed in a white bathrobe, um, that he's glowing, let's not miss that, and that he looks camera ready for a high-end salon quality hair care product commercial. Are you with me? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and then, of course, the fact that he doesn't look even a little bit Jewish in this picture, which is all sorts of interesting. Uh, but now here's, here's what you need to know. Uh, this isn't anything like the picture of Jesus that you find when you read the New Testament accounts of his life. Like, not at all. The authors of those accounts describe Jesus as fearless, uh, like a man of passion and purpose, a man who honestly had been sent by God to completely reinvent religion, and a man who at times got angry. But, but now before, I, uh, before, I, before you object and send me like a strongly worded email, let me make a critical distinction. And the distinction goes like this. Jesus' anger wasn't like our anger. Not, not really, actually most of the time, right? And, and here's a little story from my own life to illustrate what I mean by that. Um, it was over two decades ago in the fall that I took a class at Calvin Seminary right here in West Michigan over by Woodland Mall. Um, and one of the first exercises that I was assigned in that class, it was a class about pastoral formation. So for people that were training to be pastors. Um, and so the professor assigned us um, an exercise having to do with anger. And basically what he did was he said he wanted us to carry around a small notebook for a week and make a note of anything that made us angry. And if I'm honest, I felt like the assignment was a bit ridiculous. I mean, I thought to myself, I don't really struggle with anger, so I'll probably turn in a blank notebook, right? But, but it got me paying attention. Uh, and, and as it turns out, I, I do have a bit of an anger issue. Um, and I was first alerted to the reality of my issue before I left the seminary parking lot. <laughs> Here's what happened. So the seminary was under some pretty radical construction at the time. And as a result, the parking spots were at a premium, uh, to say the least. 
And uh, due to that reality, someone who was probably running late and who Jesus loves, but I was a little wobbly with, um, parked so close to my yellow Volkswagen Beetle, thus creating a parking spot where there was no parking spot, that I couldn't open my driver's door enough to climb in. Like I had to go to the passenger side and climb awkwardly over the center console. And I'm six foot four. It was something to behold, I'm telling you, right? Yeah, and in that moment, I remember having trouble believing that anyone could be so inconsiderate. I, I mean, like I was parked at a seminary to learn how to be a pastor, to love people, right? And so someone else who had been visiting the same seminary had the audacity to make my life less convenient. And I found myself thinking, I remember this, Maybe the Catholics are right. Here's what I mean by that. They have this thing called purgatory. <laughs> For people like this to work out their issues. So I made a note in my notebook and went on with my day. And, and I was kind of thinking, well, that's really interesting how, how quickly that sort of rose up inside of me, that, that anger. Fortunately, I didn't explode on anybody, but it was there. It was there. Anyway, um, a few hours later... Um, while on my way home, I had to run into Meyer to grab a few things, like you do. And upon entering the store, I realized that apparently everyone else in West Michigan also had to stop at Meyer to get a few things on their way home. The store was packed. And, and so I sort of ignored the crowds, I got my cart, and I went about assembling the few things that I need, and then I made, I made a beeline for the self-checkout lanes. Are you familiar with these, right? You kind of, you know, they somehow have convinced us that we're going to do all the work ourselves, but that's okay, right? Um, unfortunately, when I arrived at the aforementioned lane, I realized in horror that the people in front of me could not seem to figure out how to use the self-checkout scanner. I mean, it's not that hard. It's like beep in the bag, beep in the bag, beep. You've, you've done this. Yeah. But they, they were having, having trouble. Um, and as I watched, in increasing frustration as they failed and failed and failed. Then, then came the moment that I was really, really upset about where they actually pushed the help needed button and the red light began to flash. And I remember thinking to myself, maybe people should need to pass some sort of pretest <laughs> before being allowed the privilege of using the self-checkout. I mean, this is just unbelievable. And then as I'm sitting there, I thought, and I need to pull out my log again, right? <laughs> anyway, by the end of the week, my book was full, and, and I realized that I do have an anger issue. And, and, and so when I went back to class, I confessed to my professor that I had been skeptical of the assignment, but yeah, I have an anger issue. And I said, like, what are you going to do with it now? Like, this is awesome. And, and he smiled at me, and he said, you know, it may surprise you to learn that I've set you up. I said, no, I figured that. And he said, um, anger really isn't your problem. He said, you just need to be angry about the right things. And this takes us in a very Jesus-y direction. And then he said this, and I'll never forget it. He said, Jesus actually wants you to be angry. And then he began to teach a little bit of what I want to share with you today. And it's an account from the last week of the life of Jesus uh, that I'm convinced illustrates a different and radically better sort of anger. Um, and I'll need to give you a bit of background information to sort of set the stage before we go to that account. So let me, let me just start by doing that. Um, it was the final week of Jesus' life. And the final week of Jesus' life takes place during the most significant of all the Jewish feasts. It's called Passover. And Passover was one of the three times each year that God had instructed the children of Israel to gather in the city of Jerusalem. 
And a Passover commemorated the day that God had rescued the ancestors, uh, their ancestors from slavery in Egypt. And in Jesus' day, it had been like a thousand years that had passed since that event. But the memory of that first Passover remained central to the Jewish people. It was the defining moment in their history, the moment God had claimed them to be his people. Anyway, as Jesus and his disciples would have entered the city of Jerusalem on the week of Passover, the city would have been filled to overflowing, like hundreds of thousands of Jewish pilgrims from all over the world flooding the city streets. If you want to know what it would have felt like, it would have felt a bit like a post-pandemic Disney World during spring break. Oh, the horrors, right? Yeah, lines for days. Anyway, um, a historian named Josephus records for us that the city was so busy during the feasts like Passover that the Jewish priests had actually installed a drain under the altar where animals were sacrificed in order to manage the runoff. (laughs) And during the week of Passover, a literal river of blood flowed down the temple into the Kidron Valley east of the city. Okay, so many of the Jewish pilgrims that would have been there that year, uh, they would have come from all over the world. This would have been their first trip to Jerusalem for many, many of them. And it also would have been the first time they laid eyes on Jerusalem's massive temple complex. <clears throat> Here's a picture. It was constructed or actually you know, reconstructed by King Herod the Great, and it was massive. The complex itself is 16 acres in size. Uh, And so it would have been the first time they saw this, and it would have been the first time that they experienced what can only be described as stunning, confusing, and disorienting religious corruption. And and here's what I mean by that. In the first century, a group of religious leaders called the Sadducees had turned the temple into a glorified tourist trap. Uh, Historians tell us that the Sadducees didn't believe in an afterlife And so consequently, they decided to leverage their authority in the temple to build wealth for themselves in this life. In many ways, they were like the perfect embodiment of the traditional religious assumptions and structures that, as we've been exploring in this series, Jesus came to replace. They were the sacred leaders in the sacred place, overseeing this and interpreting the sacred text and telling the sincere followers how to live or else. Anyway, um, through the influence of their twisted system, the Sadducees had become some of the wealthiest people in all of Israel. Uh, They created this system uh, in which there were a category of pre-approved sacrificial animals, and those were the only animals that people were allowed to offer as sacrifices to God on the altar in the temple. And additionally, in order to purchase one of these obviously marked up pre-approved animals for sacrifice. You couldn't use the currency of whatever country you came from. You had to exchange your currency into the Israeli currency for any transactions in the temple. Practically, what this meant was that pilgrims from all over the world had to exchange their money at an exorbitant rate within the temple courts in order to purchase an exorbitantly priced pre-approved animal to fulfill their desire to honor God at Passover. It was nothing short of religious abuse, and everybody in Israel knew it. Now, obviously, this system worked really well for the Sadducees. As we said, they are some of the wealthiest people in the land of Israel. Scholars tell us that they had opulent winter homes in a city called Jericho, which is about 15 miles downhill from Jerusalem, uh, closer to the Jordan River, and the climate there was much more temperate. Uh, They drank the finest wines, and they ate the richest foods. And they were the ones that oversaw the worship of God in the temple 
in Jerusalem. And perhaps most offensively to the Jewish people in Jesus' day, um, the power and influence of the Sadducees was backed up by the power and influence of the Roman Empire. They were the the global superpower in the day. Uh, And so basically, as long as the Sadducees were able to keep the peace among the Jewish people, they were allowed to stay in power and practice their form of religion. So just imagine that emotional reality with me, and that's in place, and it was into that incredibly twisted reality that Jesus and his disciples walked on the last week of his life. And there's an early Christian named Mark who described what happened for us in his account of Jesus' life. Of course, Mark's account is called Mark, not very creatively named, but anyway, here's what Mark tells us happened. He says that last week of his life, Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything, and I love that. It's like he's paying attention. He's already aware of the corruption, but he sees it with his own eyes. Sort of drinks it in with his disciples. He says, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. So his 12 disciples. And the town of Bethany is located just a few miles east of Jerusalem. Uh, It's where Jesus and the disciples would often stay when they visited the city. But Mark essentially says to us, okay, you need to understand Jesus went to see the temple turned tourist trap for himself and then retired to Bethany for the evening. And then Mark goes on to say, the next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. Okay, so far so good. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, so no figs, because it was not the season for figs. You're like, interesting footnote, Mark, thanks for telling us. That's great, right? Jesus wants some figs for breakfast, so he walks over to a tree like this one, a a big fig tree, to see if he might, you know, find a fig out of season. And he's unsuccessful in his quest. Okay, thanks for the the detail. But as he continues, Mark tells us something that honestly is pretty disturbing. He writes that in this moment, Jesus says to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Like, is it just me or is this a really odd thing for Jesus to say, right? I mean, Mark just told us like, it wasn't supposed to have figs. It wasn't the fig season. And, And so... Beyond that, scolding a tree is generally not that effective a thing to do because, and this is my observation of the day here, trees don't have ears. Thank you, right? So whenever you see something like this in the Bible, you got to ask the question, like, what is really going on here? There must be something in the background. And it bugged me for years, and then one day I found it, and I will tell you later what it is. That's what we call tension to keep you engaged, okay? Yeah. So Mark continues. He says, on reaching Jerusalem... Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He goes on. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. In other words, Jesus and the disciples enter the temple complex that day and begin to trash it. And I'm telling you, this is the side of Jesus that many Christians tend to ignore because it's a little bit uncomfortable. But Jesus, that day, in the temple, got angry. Actually, I think he was furious that a group of sacred leaders had corrupted what God had intended for his temple. Moreover, and this is both uncomfortable and worth noting, Jesus' anger spurred him to action. Like, he wasn't just angry and had a strongly worded conversation with his disciples. Like, he moved towards the thing that made him angry. 
And, and I love um, this, this account shows up in a few of those accounts of Jesus' life. And, and another Christian named John uh, describes the events of the day this way in his account. He writes, in the temple courts, Jesus found men selling cattle and sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Check out what he tells us. So he made a whip out of cords. Yeah. <laughs> and see, I love that, man. Oof. That's not like Clairol Jesus at all. That's like get Jesus getting it done. Now, he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changer tables and overturned their tables. And to those, he said, who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And for some reason, I just love this picture of Jesus. I actually found an internet version. Check this out. This is like Renaissance art. But notice the whip in Jesus' hands. It's like Jesus is deadly serious about dealing with the religious corruption of his day. And, and he had little patience when dealing with religious abusive leaders, right? The leaders who created and perpetuated these abusive systems. Anyway, so we'll switch back to Mark's account. Mark records that in this moment, Jesus looks at the Sadducees, who, as I imagine, were standing at a healthy distance away. And this is what he says to them. He says, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And Jesus' rebuke here, like, it seems harsh to us, but honestly, we don't recognize the half of it, because in this moment, Jesus uses a technique that was popular with religious teachers in his day called a remez. It's R-E-M-E-Z in English. But, um, and he uses the remez to communicate something to these religious leaders without using words. Basically, what Jesus does here is he quotes two separate sections of old, the Old Testament to a group of leaders who would have had most of the Old Testament memorized. In other words, the Sadducees would have known what came after the sections that Jesus quotes, and he knew that they would know. So now let me show you briefly what they would have known. Uh, first, here's what an Old Testament prophet named Isaiah writes shortly after his comment about God's house being called a house of prayer for all the nations. It goes like this. Israel's watchmen are blind. They all lack knowledge. They are all mute dogs. They cannot bark. They lie around and dream. They love to sleep. They're dogs with mighty appetites. They never have enough. He goes on. He says, they are shepherds who lack understanding. They all turn to their own way. Each seeks his own gain. And we're reading this and we're like, dude, Isaiah, buddy, try the decaf, right? Like those are fighting words. That's intense. I mean, you just essentially called Israel's religious leaders uh, selfish mute dogs with insatiable appetites who are only concerned about themselves. And by implication, so had Jesus. See, but there's more. Because here's what a prophet named Isaiah, or a prophet named Jeremiah wrote shortly after his comment about God's house becoming a den of robbers. He writes these words. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name. Hang with me, I'll explain. And see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. He goes on, while you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, he says, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and to your ancestors. 
Now, Jeremiah writes generations before the time of Jesus, but he writes during a time when Jerusalem's first temple, the one built by a man named Solomon, was standing and was being run by, wait for it, a group of corrupt religious leaders. And so in his day, Jeremiah points back to a time before that temple was built when God was believed to dwell in a tent called the tabernacle that had been destroyed due to the corruption of God's people at a place called Shiloh. So it's a bit technical, but here's basically what's going on. In this moment, Jesus not only insults the Sadducees, he predicts that their entire temple system will soon be completely destroyed. And it's worth noting that um, that actually happened a few decades after the death and resurrection of Jesus when the Roman Empire laid siege to the land of Israel. That's why when we go there today, we visit the Temple Mount, the 16-acre uh, platform that was constructed by Herod and his engineers. But the temple fell in 70 AD, and the temple has never been rebuilt. Anyway, you're like, okay, that's, that's interesting. So he quotes these things, and then they would have seen the other things. But are you sure they would have seen the other things? I mean, are, are you 100% confident? Well, let me show you what uh, Mark tells us happens right after Jesus said this. Here's what Mark tells us. The chief priests and teachers of the law, that's another name for Sadducees, heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. In other words, the corrupt religious leaders saw Jesus as a threat to their livelihood and to their prosperity, which he was. And they began to look for a way to get rid of him once and for all. And it shouldn't surprise us that the biblical scholars would, would say, okay, this day in the temple courts, if you're saying like, where did, where did the religious establishment really turn on Jesus? This was it. This was the moment that catalyzed the campaign that eventually ended with Jesus hanging on a cross. And that actually makes sense if you think about it. I mean, Jesus was bold. He was fearless. He was dangerous. And he was getting popular. See, people longed for the sort of revolution that Jesus would bring. Okay, so what I want to do now is just show you how this passage concludes. Here's what Mark tells us. He says, when evening came, they went out of the city of Jerusalem. And in the morning as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. And Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. And it's just interesting to note that these two fig tree scenes kind of bookend Jesus' angry outburst in the temple. And I mean, years ago, I remember thinking there must be a connection. There must be a reason. And then one day I learned that there is. So here you go. Throughout the Old Testament, if you're reading it carefully, what you'll see is that fig trees are used to represent the religious leaders of Israel. And so when Jesus curses a fig tree, he's symbolically cursing the Sadducees. He's telling them, your time in power is coming to an end. Your time of abuse and influence is about to be done. In fact, um, you know, the time of traditional religion with all of its forms and functions and abuses and corruption was supposed to be coming to an end because Jesus was about to usher in an entirely new arrangement between people and God. A new covenant 
in which temples, including the Jewish temple, would no longer be necessary. In fact, in fact, under his new covenant, Jesus taught that he would make and maintain peace with God once and for all by shedding his blood on the cross. And moreover, as we've said over and over in this series, as it was his faithfulness and not human obedience that brought about this peace, people no longer needed to worry about where they stood with God. So they no longer needed to be concerned with making animal sacrifices to God in temples in order to pay for their sins. Because Jesus paid it all. And I was thinking, like, we should write a song about that. It would be huge, right? Yeah. Anyway, before, before I let you go, I want to ask you a question on which you can reflect over your time at Panera or Cadoba or at home or wherever you, you know, have lunch. And the question goes like this. How was Jesus' anger different than your anger and my anger? Or at least the anger that like naturally bubbles up inside of us. And I have a few thoughts um, on my anger that may help you as you sort of wrestle down the answer for yourselves. But um, first, if I'm honest, I tend to get angry whenever I'm inconvenienced or whenever my agenda is interrupted or my image is tarnished or my ego is bruised or when things don't go my way. And I have the suspicion I'm not the only one. Just throw that out there, right? See, but Jesus got angry when things weren't going the way God wanted them to go. Like, if you read those accounts of Jesus' life, and we're going to unpack this a little bit next week, but you start to see that over and over and over again, Jesus like lays down his pride. Whenever he's betrayed or beaten or wrong, he like, he turns the other cheek. And, and so I guess what I'm trying to say is that Jesus' anger wasn't about his reputation or things going his way. It was about God's reputation and about things that were not going God's way. And, and here's the thing. He looks at people like you and me, and he says, follow me, Fo be like me, learn to be the sort of person that I was in the world. Like, you're going to be my hands and feet. You're going to be light in darkness. And this actually makes sense if you start to think about it, because imagine with me, like, how did Jesus taught his disciples to pray? One day they say to him, you know, teach us to pray. And he responds with the most famous prayer ever, the Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You know, and then he says this, your kingdom come, or maybe you grew up King James, thy kingdom come, right? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And according to Jesus, God's kingdom is the place where everything is just as God wants it to be. It's where the king is ruling. And so by implication, we look around things on planet earth and um, there's some work that needs to be done if the goal is that the, the rule and reign of heaven would, would increasingly come on earth. And so Jesus looks at his first followers and looks at all of us who have accepted the invitation to be his follower. And he says, I want you to pray for and work for and fight for things to be the way that God wants them to be here and now. And, and I'm telling you, like they heard this prayer and then they witnessed, they were a part of that day in the temple. They never would have forgotten it. They never would have forgotten what happened that day in the temple or that Jesus wanted them to be angry when things were not the way that God wants them to be. But it's a very different sort of anger. So, so I need to ask you, have you ever felt that sort of redemptive anger when you saw something that just wasn't right? And then the second part of that question, 
you know, did your anger move you to action? Because if so, you already know that you succumbed to a righteous impulse and that something in our world is a little bit better because of it. And, and if you find yourself, you know, paying attention to our world or our community or whatever, and stuff makes you angry, but you've never moved towards it redemptively, I would challenge you this week to spend some time considering what, what it might look like for you to move in that direction. Because I'm telling you, in Jesus' reinvention of religion, he desires to channel righteous anger for redemptive purposes. Okay, so now if you're here in the room, I'd love to invite you to stand and I'll close our time in prayer. And once again this week, if you have joined us, uh, maybe you're here for the first time and you know, you're like, okay, interesting talk, but I really need to talk to somebody. I really need to pray with somebody. I just invite you under the screen on this side of the room. There's some volunteers that would love to, to meet with you, to hear, hear your story and then to pray with you. But uh, for the rest of us, let me pray. Heavenly Father, um, I continue to be amazed at the freedom that you intend for us all to live into and the way you made that possible through sending your one and only son to teach us, to model for us, and then to die for us so that we might step into a new covenant, a covenant of grace. So thank you for that invitation Thank you for desiring to partner with broken people in a broken world. And most of all today, we just once again want to say thank you for Jesus in the coming weeks as we begin to consider what happened that first Easter Sunday. Pray that you would fill us with wonder at how far you were willing to go to rescue people that you love. And you love all so it is in the matchless name of your son, our savior, King Jesus, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Grace and peace to you, friends. We'll see you next week.